Today we are completing our exposition, our verse-by-verse study of John's Gospel with our 108th sermon, having spent anywhere from two sermons per chapter to 11 sermons per chapter, carefully expounding each clause of the book. This is what's known as Lectio Continua Preaching, or consecutive exposition. And it was the habit of the early church fathers from Ambrose and Augustine and Chrysostom, but it fell into disuse for nearly a thousand years in the Roman Catholic Church. At the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, this quickly became the practice once again of the Protestant Reformers. On January 1st, 1519, Ulrich Zwingli, a 35-year-old Roman Catholic priest and pastor of the Cathedral Church in Zurich, Switzerland, began consecutive exposition once again, began preaching through the Gospel of Matthew daily at 6 a.m. services at this church. His congregation, soon the whole city, cast off the shackles of Roman Catholicism, realizing as they heard the gospel preached consecutively, realizing that Rome's doctrines and practices had no foundation in Scripture. And by the consecutive preaching of the Scriptures, the simple explanation and application, a church, then a city, and soon a nation, Switzerland became Protestant. Now, by the way, just a tiny little editorial note. That practice that was renewed 502, 503 years ago in Zurich, Woodruff Road supports now Florian Viken, who is replanting the Reformed faith in Zurich, the same city where Zwingli began doing consecutive expository preaching. And Florian is engaged in consecutive expository preaching, once again in Zurich. Twenty years after Zwingli began the practice in Zurich, 170 miles to the southwest, a young John Calvin came to Geneva, Switzerland, and began the same practice of preaching through a whole book of Scripture. And he began with a lengthy series in the Gospel of John. And in the evening service, 200 sermons consecutively on Deuteronomy. Consecutive exposition, our normal pattern here, takes seriously the mandate to do what is commanded in Acts chapter 20. Preach the whole counsel of God. Consecutive exposition makes the preacher the slave of the text. The minister cannot skip around the Bible, choosing snatches of a verse that fits his hobby horse. He must expound and apply the whole Bible. Consecutive exposition teaches good hermeneutics, good interpretive skills, as the pastor gives the congregation a model week by week by week. Of context of how to handle the scriptures carefully. A text is always presented in its proper context. So let me just take you on a tiny tour of where we've been and where we are going in our practice of consecutive exposition. Over the last 22 years since I've been here, the pastors have expounded over half of the Bible, 34 books consecutively. I've preached through Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, Psalms, Proverbs, Daniel, Obadiah, and Malachi. And Luke, John, Acts, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and James. Pastor Dodds has preached through Mark, Galatians, First and Second Peter, Esther, and more. Pastor Anderson has done the heavy lifting and has preached through Nehemiah, Job, Ecclesiastes, Habakkuk, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Hebrews, and more. And we have assigned Pastor King the easy books of Scripture to expound Song of Solomon and Revelation. 
we have done and will continue to do so, topical series and doctrinal series, but we are deeply committed as pastors that the core of our preaching, the mainstay, will be consecutive exposition. That must be the steady diet of the Christian. That is our intent and our plan of how to feed you the word. And so as we prepare to open this last text in John's gospel, let's seek the Lord's help. O God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into truth and taught your will for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hope you have your copy of God's Word open to John 21. And I want you to watch carefully how John ends his gospel, for it's powerful. It's, it's very important. He builds a case in his closing argument. This is sort of a lawyer, like a lawyer, making his last points before the jury. And what I want you to hear is his four-point closing argument. Watch these four carefully. Point number one in his closing argument is, I am an eyewitness of everything recorded here. Point number two, therefore I have sure and certain knowledge of these occurrences. Point number three, so this gospel is true. And point number four, and oh I could tell you so much more. Let me say that again, because these four points, I want you to get inside the logic of John's mind and how he closes this gospel. Point number one, his first assertion is, I am an eyewitness of everything recorded in the previous 21 chapters. Point number two is, therefore I have sure and certain knowledge of these occurrences. Assertion number three, so this gospel is true. And fourth and finally, And I can tell you so much more. Now notice the first assertion in verse 24, where John is making the closing assertion, I am an eyewitness of everything recorded. Look what he says in verse 24. He's speaking of himself, but you know John's modesty. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. It's very interesting how John closes his gospel. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospels, either ascend with the ascension of Jesus or with the Great Commission, but not John. He has a unique, even unusual ending. As he's been doing all through this entire gospel, John does not refer to himself by name. But here, look what he calls himself. He has been calling himself frequently the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he calls himself in verse 24, the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. And we know his testimony is true. Now, the New Testament, he's making a point here that the New Testament is largely penned by eyewitnesses who give testimony. John, in in another place, in fact, just turn there because I want you to see John's style of writing. Look at 1 John chapter 1. Another one of his writings, you do realize, of course, that John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation. And John uses there the same sort of eyewitness language. And you're going to need your finger there because we're going to see that John has a particular issue to press home to you today. And you'll see it both in the Gospel of John and in 1st John. 
John states eyewitness language in his preface here in 1 John 1. He says, That which we have heard, seen with our eyes, looked upon and handled, that's what we declare to you. And so what John is saying, whether it's at the end of his gospel or at the beginning of his first epistle, John is saying, I'm the same man who leaned back on Jesus' shoulder in the upper room. I'm the same man who stood by the cross and watched the blood and water flow out of his pierced side. I'm the same man who heard all of Jesus' sermons. I'm the same man who heard, who saw all of Jesus' miracles. I am a qualified eyewitness. But John's not the only eyewitness who writes Scripture. Listen to what Luke says in Luke 1. He says, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. So Luke tells us about his sources, eyewitnesses, plural. Of course, he's primarily referring to the apostles who were all eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke is showing us and telling us as he begins his gospel that he didn't collect legends or gossip but the hard testimony of authoritative witnesses. And then Peter says the same thing when he writes. In 1 Peter 5, he says, I am a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Paul says the exact same thing, who says he was a witness and eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15.8, he says, he was seen by me. Unlike other world religions, Christianity has a myriad of eyewitnesses that all agree. And so notice what John's first plank is in his closing argument. Look at verse 24 again. He's saying, I am an eyewitness of everything recorded. And then his second plank. Therefore, I have sure and certain knowledge of these occurrences. I want you to notice the word he uses in this text. In verse 24, he says, he's speaking of himself, but you know his modesty. He says, We know that his testimony is true. He's unembarrassed in using the word no. Is he arrogant? Now, our culture, you do realize this, right? That if you go to work tomorrow and you say, I know. I know that Jesus has risen from the dead. I know the Bible is true. You should know this you're going to get hard pushback because our culture has given up on knowledge. If you even ask someone, how can you know that person is a woman or a man? They will quickly shuffle off, embarrassed. This is what the effect of postmodern philosophy for the last 40 years has been. Any claim to intellectual or moral certainty is called arrogance. But John, by the Holy Spirit, says such settled understanding can be yours. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, we know this. We, he's speaking of himself, we know that John's testimony is true. How does he know this? By mystical experience, by study of philosophy, by ungrounded theories, by exaggerations or half-truths? No. Religions that are founded on such things offer no satisfaction for the deepest yearnings of the human heart or satisfaction for the serious thinking mind. Settled certainty, listen carefully and look at verse 24. Settled certainty, sure knowledge comes from reading the plain facts of the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is where you come to know the certainties of life. Notice this ending of John sets a pattern for the ending of other writings of John. And what I want you to do is, at this, on this very last day of looking at John's gospel, I want you to get deep inside his mind. Keep one finger here and look over at First John chapter 5. And what we'll see is, is that John always ends his writings with this issue. We know. Certainty. That's what John's all about is he wants you to walk out of this room today with intellectual, cognitive certainty that your feet are not planted on water, but they're planted on the rock. And so look how John ends another letter. 1 John 5, verses 18 through 20, three times he does this. This is how he ends his epistle. 1 John 5, 18, we know, there's that word again, we know that Whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. This is the certainty of regeneration and righteousness. The believer is solidified as he obeys God's commands. But John is just picking up steam. Look at 1 John five nineteen. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. This is the certainty of relationship. We are, John is saying, we're certain that a fundamental separation has occurred between us and the world system to which we once belong. Now we are of God. We are walking in his direction. We are going on with him. The world, on the other hand, we know this, lies in the power of the evil one. And then John does a third, we know. Look at his certainty in verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come. And has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. This is the certainty of historical reality. Facts, documentable actions. The Son of God has come. Now, what I want you to see, and maybe this is the first time you're hearing this or seeing this or grasping this about John. All through his writings, and I want to prove it to you. All through his writings... John is about giving you certainty. And he does so by this phrase. We know. We know this. So look at 1 John 2. Your finger's right there already. Go on a quick survey with me. Look at 1 John 2, verses 3 and following. And watch for this phrase. We know. Again, when I say this, our culture right now is running out of the room screaming, saying, quit saying that you know, you can't know anything. Well, can I know what you just said? No, you can't know anything. So 1 John 2, verse 3 through 5, John writes, By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandment. He who says, I know him, and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. And then in 1 John 3, verse 14, John says, We know, there it is again, intellectual certainty, cognitive certainty. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Same chapter, 1 John 3, 24, By this we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. There are people who came here this morning who don't have a lot of certainty about anything. They've listened to the culture. And they're thinking, well, 
you can't really know anything. Stick with me here as we see how often, just this one biblical author, John, keeps asserting and affirming, here are things we know, and we know them by the study of the scripture. John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Same chapter, 1 John 4, 13. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. Same chapter, verse 16. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. 1 John chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. This knowledge that John is speaking about is the secret of Christian poise and the unshakable patience which Christians ought to be manifesting in any situation. This is one of the great things about Christianity. Christians know what lost men don't because they know these propositions that we see here in John's gospel. They act differently in situations than others. They react differently to what happens to them. It's based on this certain knowledge gained from Scripture that John is referring to here. Now, we see that in John's epistle. John is the gospel of belief. But this belief is founded firmly on facts that can be known. Facts that are attested by a plurality of reliable, sober witnesses. Now, not only will John write about this in 1 John... Let me remind you that he's been doing the exact same thing in his gospel. In fact, if there is anything that is identifiable about John's writings, it is this. In his gospel and in his epistles, he's constantly asserting that we know. Look at John's gospel to John chapter 3. In John 3 verse 11. We hear Jesus saying to Nicodemus, and I want you to notice in whose mouth we have this intellectual certainty as we go through John's gospel. John 3.11, this is Jesus speaking to Nicodemus by night. He says, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. Or in John chapter 4, the next chapter over, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. And he says, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And then look at what these newly converted residents of Samaria say. Look at John 4 verse 42. These are the brand new believers in Samaria. Newest believers. Are they struggling with intellectual certainty? No. Listen to what they say. Now we believe, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know. They've been converted for, oh, half an hour. We know. This is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Or look at what Peter does in John 6, verse 69. What I want you to do is be overwhelmed by how often John speaks of intellectual certainty. John 6, verse 69, Peter says, We have come to believe, and there's that word again, and know that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, this is John's second plank in his closing argument, that we know things. 
we have intellectual certainty. And then third, John says, third plank is closing argument. So therefore, eyewitnesses, we have sure knowledge. Therefore, this gospel is true. Look what he says in verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Do you know what you can write across the entire gospel of John? Truth. If you're looking for absolute truth, this is where you'll find it. No fake news here. Now let me remind you why truth matters. Our concern with truth is an inevitable expression of our concern with God. If God exists, then he's the measure of all things. And what he thinks about all things is the measure of what we should think. Not to care about truth is to not care about God. To love God passionately is to love truth passionately. Being God-centered in life means being truth-driven. What is not true is not of God. What is false is anti-God. Indifference to truth is indifference to the mind of God. Our concern with truth is simply an echo of our concern with God. To love the truth is an act of worship. Indeed, it's one of the highest acts of worship we can offer to God. The non-Christian cannot, does not, love the truths of God's word. For the last 30 or 40 years, Christians have been dealing with the latest challenge to truth. There are more lined up in the pipeline, but if you haven't been watching, oh, for the last generation, the philosophical attack on Christianity has been postmodernism. Postmodernism has four definable corner posts. See if these sound familiar. The first is the deconstruction of language and meaning, so that now words no longer mean anything concrete and substantive. Our language has been deconstructed. The second corner post of postmodernism is moral relativism. There are no absolutes, no certainties in the moral realm. Third corner post, pluralism. There should be a level playing field for all religions. Religion is a matter of personal choice. The one great heresy is to say your religion is correct and all others wrong. Tolerance is the essence of postmodernism. No one religion can be said to be superior or the final authority. No one can say, I believe what is true and you believe what is false. And then the fourth cornerstone in this house of postmodernism is existentialism. Feelings rule the day. Doctrine and empirical facts don't count. What I feel at this moment is right and true. So if I feel like a 17-year-old girl, that is my truth. And you can't say anything about it. But what John is asserting is I want you to know true truth. The absolute truth. Look at the end of verse 24 where John uses that word that is so offensive to our culture. He's stating his testimony is true. And he uses the beautiful Greek word aletheia, which means reality, or factual. He's saying what I've just pinned for you in 21 chapters is reality. John is saying, read what I've written and you'll see the facts upon which the Christian religion is squarely based. And you'll find something that's firm and solid and absolutely trustworthy. A sure foundation for faith, you'll find truth. John is saying, you must know for certain that the gospel of Christ I'm preaching has an impregnable historical foundation, it's 
true. I'm not calling you to believe lies or fiction, but the absolute truth. Now, all through the New Testament, truth is praised by the biblical writers. For example, John will will write the words of Jesus in John 8. We know that truth is what liberates us and sets us free. We're told in John 16 by Jesus that he's going to give us the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. We're told by Jesus in John 17 in his prayer to the Father. He asked the Father to sanctify all believers by the truth. God's word is true. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, the lost man doesn't receive the love of the truth that he might be saved. But the Christian man was chosen from the beginning for salvation through belief in the truth. Our culture, of course, when they hear what I've just said, and I will tell you, many evangelicals who I've spoken to will say, Carl, I don't like all this emphasis on truth. In fact, I think all this emphasis on truth isn't loving. Oh, yes, it is. Scripture says so. In the premier context on Christian love, listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. But love rejoices in the truth. All this emphasis on truth is loving. It's misplaced courtesy or something worse when we're given opportunity to fail to publicly proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ for fear of upsetting some people. The most loving thing you can do, the greatest kindness you can do for men, whatever their views of religion, is to tell them the truth. That Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. That he will return to pass final sentence on all men on the last day. And their only way of escape is to bend the knee to him now in repentance and faith. The most loving thing you can do for anybody is to put them in possession of the truth. If you withhold clear biblical truth from them, the argument can be made that you're unloving and not desiring their salvation. Never apologize for biblical truth. Never attempt to suppress it or keep it out of sight, for then you're acting like an unbeliever. Now look at John's last statement that he makes in verse 25 of our text. This is the second time he does this. He did it before in 1 John chapter 20. He discusses his editorial process, and we're calling this his final plank in his closing argument, the, oh, and I could tell you so much more. Last week, Sandy and I were at the beach, and a small boy had a cup, and he ran to the water, and he dipped it, his cup in full from the incoming waves, and he turned and ran back to his mom, and he said, I got the ocean. That's what John is saying. Look at verse 25. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. John is saying, I had so much material to draw from that if I were to put it down in print about the life and ministry of Jesus, there's no library could contain the volumes. He's saying there's, there's a great deal more about Jesus that he could have told us. We are, after all, talking about the eternal 
God the Son, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh, the creator, the the agent of providence. We're talking about the sovereign Lord, the omniscient one. We're talking about the Holy One who never sinned in thought, word, or deed, but was made sin for us. We're talking about the One who daily went about doing good. We're talking about the One who John could have just recorded His humiliations. The millions of them by wicked men. Not microaggressions, but real humiliations. We're talking about the One who will return in judgment. Now, what was John's editorial principle? When you look at verse 25 and you think, Okay, John, why did you write such a short gospel? If you could have written all those things, and by the way, John, there are all these things that I'm curious about. So why did you write this? Take a look back at the end of chapter 20 and notice his editorial principle. John has already told it for you. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John pulls the curtain back and tells you about the assembling of Scripture. Many other signs, he says in John 20, verse 30. We don't have in John's Gospel, let me keep reminding you this, we don't have in John's Gospel an exhaustive listing of every sign Jesus performed. Not even 1%, perhaps. We're told that he did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. So at least 11 men could affirm them, eyewitnesses, One limiting factor in John's choice of which signs to record was this. Was it done in the presence of the disciples? Was there a plurality of reputable witnesses? So this means that all the signs of Jesus that are recorded are history, truth, factual occurrences. They're not accounts of what the disciples fabricated or wished. They're sober accounts of what Jesus did. And John says in John 20 verse 30, These are not written in this book. John, by the Holy Spirit, exercised an editorial process of not recording many of Christ's signs. No matter how interesting the event, John didn't record it if it didn't meet this criteria. For example, I've told you this before, but let me remind you. John doesn't mention in his whole gospel Jesus' birth, baptism, calling of the apostle, or parables. He doesn't mention our Lord's temptation in the wilderness, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't mention the transfiguration. He doesn't speak of some of Christ's most spectacular miracles, such as the stilling of the storm or the deliverance of the Gadarene demoniac. He doesn't mention several of Jesus' most consequential sermons, such as the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't speak of the mighty healings done by Jesus, such as the son of the widow of Nain or Jairus' daughter of the ten lepers. John is ruthlessly laser-focused on what he does not write about. He doesn't write about himself. He doesn't even mention his name. John the Apostle and author's motto is the same as John the Baptist. Jesus. He must increase and I must decrease. He doesn't write anything about Jesus that would satisfy idle curiosity. No physical descriptions of Jesus. Nothing about Jesus' height or weight or color of his eyes. Nothing about Jesus' childhood or siblings. But look at his writing principle. We need to keep revisiting this. Look at John 20, verse 31. These are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. John is transparent about his intention. Could he have filled the world with writings? Yes. But the design of his book is to produce saving faith in the Jesus who is God. He tells the reader that no verse in this whole gospel is intended to allow for any doubt.
This is the gospel of certainty. So how do we apply this word? Look at our text. Look at the last words of it. John closes by saying in verse 24, We know, speaking of himself, his testimony is true. The Christian is deeply committed to knowing truth since it will be victorious. The day is coming very soon when the battle for truth will be done and all lies and liars will be crushed and exposed. John will later write in Revelation chapter 21 at the close of his apocalyptic book. He writes this, The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatries, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, but there shall by no means enter it, that is the kingdom of heaven. Anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. John then will say in Revelation 22, the very end of scripture, he affirms truth again. He says, outside are dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murders and idolatry and whoever loves and practices a lie. What John wants to say in his gospel and epistle is truth is certain. You can know it. And in his last apocalyptic book in Revelation, he wants to say it is a bad bet to believe a lie. You want to believe the truth because truth will be victorious. We should see all through Scripture that all falsehoods are destined for the trash heap. Over and over again in Scripture, falsehood is toppled. In 1 Samuel 5, we see false gods bowing down to Dagon. We see in 1 Kings 18, false gods showing to be false and defeated, such as Baal. Those are all just foreshadowings, down payments of the day when all systems of belief will be seen to be empty shells. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess the truth. Every Buddhist monk, every evolutionary professor, every liberal pastor, every secular political leader, all will bow just like Dagon and lick the dust and say, Jesus is Lord, and every word he said is true. So, Since the gospel is true, I must urge you today to believe in Jesus as the Christ, God the Son, in the flesh. The facts about his person and work are beyond question. They are well attested by a myriad of eyewitnesses. Investigate them. And then believe in Jesus personally as your Savior. Commit yourself to him. Submit to his lordship. And own him as your king. Let's pray together. Our Father, send your Holy Spirit to us to give us a deep commitment to truth. Give us stronger faith in what is revealed in your word and by that mature us. We pray in the name of Jesus, our only Savior. Amen.